Welcome to the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. If this is your first time listening, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, taking time out of your day to listen to the stories that we have for you today. Being in law enforcement is a difficult task. It's something that you are called to do. And I believe that these these days that people are having a more and more angst about what it is it means to be a police officer. I've spent 16 years in law enforcement, and I have seen the best and I've seen the worst of humanity has to offer. And I think that most of us in this field can say the same. Now, most of the day, I would say, is going to be dedicated to serving the community and taking time out to um, truly listening to the people of the community and and handling the issues that that each one of us has faced. Now, what I implore you to do today is to take time out of your day to not only look outward, but to look inward within your agency and to explore those relationships in, in a way that you haven't done before. When that means is to take time out and to listen to the people around us and find out what's going on in their lives. I think each and every one of us has a story. We all have things that are going on outside of our careers and a lot of times that is actually brought into the workplace, as we know. And I think that by taking time out of our day and spending that time with each other, which is in this case having a cup of coffee, sit down and just and just talk and, to, and just listen, I think that we'll be able to learn a lot from each other. So I hope you enjoy this episode today, and I hope each and every one of you has a great day. You can find me on Instagram at AP underscore Sturgeon or at Let's Grab a Cup. You can also find this at letsgrabacup.com or find me at sturgeonwellness.com. Have a great day. Welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. This is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. And we provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon. So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. Well, uh, good afternoon or good morning, whenever time you're listening to this podcast. Uh, my name is Adam Sturgeon, and this is the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Jason Lehman. Uh, we find the coordinator schedules to get this uh, recorded, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, Jason was a police officer for uh, about 16 years and uh, promoted to sergeant uh, three years ago. And um, Jason re- just recently... Uh, left the police department to start his new career uh, working as a consultant with Lexapol, which is a nationally uh, recognized agent for, agency for policy, wellness, and training. And uh, Jason's been able to um, come into this role as a consultant for Lexapol as a national subject matter expert on community policing, which is really cool. And you started that off with a nonprofit about, what, 12 years ago? Yeah, 10, 10, 10, 12 years, years ago? Yeah. yeah. It's called Why'd You Stop Me? So we'll get into that today, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. So let's start this off with, um, I'm always curious to see what got people into policing. So t- tell us about your background, where you grew up, and then kind of like, um, as a early age, like what got you into this field of police work? Yeah, you know, I grew up in New York City, New York, which is a really interesting upbringing. And my parents were separated, but they were both hard workers. And so I would kind of be on my own. And from the age of like <clears throat> 11 to the age of 13, I kind of got in with the wrong crowd. Now, I grew up in like an upper middle class kid. I didn't have to go and do anything to make ends meet or anything like that. But I, I ended up making some bad decisions. And then at the age of 13, um, I made a really bad decision. And uh, I got arrested for attempted murder. I ended up uh, 
knocking a UPS man out with a brick and putting him in a coma. And during that incident, um, the police officer that arrested me was very, very rough with me. And I thought, man, that's, I don't know if this is how it's supposed to be. And it wasn't a comfortable experience. I was very, very fortunate. No charges were filed. Uh, my mom picked me up and moved me across the country to the state of California where I found the game of football. And football changed my life. So I didn't have another experience with the police until college. And in college, I was looking for an easy major. I played football at the University of South Florida and on a scholarship. And when you're playing football on a scholarship, you're very hyper-focused on football. And I, my focus wasn't too much on the scholastic part of things. But then I ended up um, finding, finding police work um, because I majored in criminology or criminal justice. And I went and did a ride, I mean, did an internship with the Temple Terrace Police Department out in Tampa. Okay. It's a bordering agency from uh, the Tampa PD. And I really got intrigued about law enforcement. And so I, I tried to continue playing football. It didn't work out, but I ended up going back to California. When I went back to California, I started coaching football at Woodrow Wilson High School in Long Beach. And when I started coaching, the fo coaching football there, I was exposed to Long Beach police officers. But my greatest exposure to a police officer was when I walked into a bar um, and I was I was exposed to a police officer from from an agency uh, down in that area. And that office, that officer was actually the sergeant of a gang unit. And that sergeant ended up getting into a bar fight with me. And in Hold the, on, fighting with you, you guys were fighting. Each we other? got in a physical fight in the bar. And uh, was he on duty? No, he was oh, off duty. Right. And um you know, I don't really like admitting to who won the fight, right? Like, that would be weird. But um, I'll tell you, Adam, when he picked me up off the ground, <laughs> he, uh, he dusted me off and he mentored me through the process of becoming a police officer. And becoming that police officer was the the best feeling. And, and I saw through ride-alongs and through my exposure in the internship that policing didn't always have to be aggressive, What's crazy is when I became a police officer, my mind on that, on, on the way policing is done was changed. And that's a whole other story. But that's ultimately how I got into law enforcement. And I, I joined to make a difference and I wanted to help people. And uh, the my why in law enforcement has changed throughout the years. Yeah, I think uh, I think starting off, it always changes from what you think it's going to be versus what it ends up being later on. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go back to so. You, you mentioned when you're a child, and I'm kind of curious. So you're in New York at this time, mm -hmm. or growing up. Uh, how did you get into get involved in this position where you're now? And you said you assaulted a, a UPS driver. Yeah, I'm really curious, like how you get to this point. Like, were you? You said you're doing bad things, or you hanging out with the wrong crowd. Like, what was that? What describe that for us? What yeah, that? you know, I I, um, I started looking for attention at a really early age because I didn't think that I was getting the attention from my family that I, that I feel like I might've needed. So I went to this group of kids and I'd all started from a little league baseball team and that little league baseball team, the team was called the young bloods and in the young bloods baseball team and baseball organization, there were a lot of kids that, um, they didn't have the same opportunities that I had and they, you know, lived in the projects and they, um, weren't bad people and they didn't have bad families, but they were very mischievous. And so they started doing, um, you know, small criminal acts, you know, shoplifting or something like that. And then 
before we knew it, we were doing this, this very mischievous act of trying to break windows with bricks. And so we were at this playground area. And in New York, it's hard to picture, but there's sky rises. And these high-rise apartments inside the apartment, like on the third floor or the fifth floor, they'll build a playground. Okay. So you literally like go to the third floor and you walk outside and you're at a playground. It's that's like a, on a terrace or something? Yeah, it's like okay. surrounded by all sides on a building. But some of these playgrounds could be half the size of a football field. They're just in between all of these buildings, right? So there's a playground out there that they were building up a wall on, and they had these bricks. And when they had the bricks, uh, we decided we were going to smash those bricks and try and break the windows that were across the ultimately across the street but elevated on the third story. So as we're throwing the bricks, trying to hit the windows, they're hitting the wall of the building, and they're coming down, and there are people down below. All right. Ultimately, that's what ended up happening was that brick went and knocked a UPS delivery man out. And they, when the police first initially approached it, they, they caught me. Everybody else ran. They caught me because I was always the short, stubby, waddly kid um, growing up. So they caught me, and they ended up arresting me thinking that it was purposeful. Got it. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. Okay, so yeah, because when you tell the story, I've heard the story before, mm-hmm. and when you tell the story, I'm always curious, like, what the circumstances were, if, like, you were aiming at a UPS driver, or, like, you're saying it was more of, like, yeah. that was the accident part, but you guys were clearly doing something wrong, like, break time, sure, windows. Sure, sure. But the intention of trying to hurt this person wasn't your intent. Mm-hmm. And all, that's why, the, guessing that's why the tra- charges were dropped. Yeah, yeah, and I've always, and, and maybe we'll get into this in law enforcement, but I've always been a person who's gotten caught when I haven't really done anything even though it's embarrassing to say that I have tried to do things and not gotten caught or I have done things and not gotten caught. So we used to take pennies. Um, I li- we lived on the fourth floor. And we would take pennies and we would try our hardest to throw them down and hit people with them. And it was so, it's such a horrible idea to think about that now. But at the age of 11, that was a challenge that all of the friends had was who can, who can hit people with the most pennies? Then one day, a homeless person showed up with a bag of, I don't know, 30 or 40 pennies that he had collected as we were throwing them, and he brought them right to the front desk of our building. And the building has security at the front desk, most of these buildings. And they called my mom, and they said, hey, did you know your son was doing this? And that didn't go too well. So um, that was the end of that. But it's always I've always been looking, as a kid, I was always looking for that mischievous move Right, uh, and most of it, I think, was because I was trying to gain attention, and um, that's it's been interesting. Yeah. So you said your mom didn't have that. So was your mom pretty strict growing up? My mom was. Um, it's it's hard to say. She was strict when she wanted to be. Um, it was kind of an on and off thing. My dad was a like serious disciplinarian, and my dad would raise his voice. And when it raised when he raised his voice, it it seemed to me as though the windows would shake. And he would scream, and it would be shocking to me. And um, he wouldn't sit and chat with me or communicate with me afterwards. He would just scream at me, and it would shut down. And it was just so weird to me because there was no conversation after. He didn't, like, answer the why of why this was wrong or why this was bad. He just just screamed. So um, I had discipline, but also at other points I would yearn for discipline, if that makes sense. Sometimes she would be involved enough to discipline me, and sometimes she would be separated and not know exactly what's going on. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder how that, how does that fall now with your kids? Do you feel like you, do you see yourself where you maybe get your, like have lose your temper, but then you have to like, okay, 
put yourself back in that position yeah. and like, how do you deal with it now? Yeah. They probably want to know why. That's right. Yeah. My, my kids know. And, and now I think explaining the why in parenting is something that's extremely important. Like back in the day, you know, even when we first were coming up in the academy, when people told you what to do, you just did it. And right. then when they said why, it's because I told you so. Right. And that's and that's ultimately trickled down into law enforcement where we haven't really focused on the why. And now we're starting in law enforcement to focus on the why and answering the why. But for me, when I'm with my kids, I catch myself, um, you know, wanting to have an outburst, you know, and I catch myself. I think one of the things I'm checking myself on right now um, on an ongoing basis is raising my voice because raising your voice shouldn't make your message very different. Your message should be your message. And the raising of the voice is something that is a loss of control. And so um, I've been trying to keep my voice and deal with my voice, but I do have those flashbacks of my dad screaming at me, and I'm trying to not do that with my children, you know. But they say that it's kind of generational, right? Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting because I, uh, I don't know where it was I saw this, but as far as being a parent, like kids, when you're like, yeah, well, you raise your voice to yell at your kids for whatever reason – Maybe they're not listening. It's a hundredth time you've told them. And now it's like, dude, I'm like, now I'm raising my voice because you're not listening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see this huge guy and in your case, larger than life, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you, like huge guy yelling at them. Mm-hmm. It's different. They, they feel just scared just because you're a big guy. You know, you miss your dad, but like yelling at you, but even me with my daughters, if I yell at them, there are times where like, I might have just raised my voice. Even if I'm not yelling at them, I, they get like upset, you know, the, and it's like they're not, they don't do the thing I've asked them to do. They just get upset. Yeah, you know, it's this idea of like, okay, well, it's a you know, this big human being is now yelling at you versus like actually dealing with the issue, whatever the issue is. Yeah, so I, I just had, I just had my six year old Jameson. Um, I raised my voice. I don't know about a week ago or something like that, and he looked at me and he said, "Dad, you know, I'm not. I'm if I'm not listening, I'm not going to start listening when you scream at me." And I was <laughs> like, like it was so, but you know, he, he's 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 learning himself and he's learning how to respond the right way. And I think that the screaming thing, you know, it's like when I first started, when I first discussed having children with Amanda, I told myself, I'm going to hit my kids. Like if my kids act out, I'm going to use, like I'm going to spank them. Right. And in speaking with Amanda, she convinced me that that's not something that has to be done. And so we've decided to go away from that and not do that. And it's kind of like what Jameson said to me, like, you don't have to scream. Right. I'm going to listen when I want to listen. You just have to convince me on why it's important and answer my why. And I'm like, and to think about that from a six-year-old standpoint just burns me because you feel like you're the authoritarian in the home, right? Like, yeah. listen to me. So There's so many times where I go, Christy, they're not listening to me. Can you handle this? Like, they're yeah. just not listening. That's right. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm done. They're not listening. Can someone else take it, take over? Cause maybe they'll listen to you better. That's right. It's, That's it, it's so, yeah, it's so frustrating. And then, you know, the, the, the back and forth that happens there is now Christy's probably thinking, well, why am I handling them? Why am I handling, you know, Adam's issues? Right. And that's probably what, what Amanda's thinking to me. Cause we do some of the similar things too. Like, Hey, I need you here. Like, come on, there's gotta be a different approach. Yeah, right? Cause I'm not doing it's, it right. Yeah, so, yeah, something's going on. Get this to stop. Like that's this is funny. frustrating. So, so, okay. So you're a kid, you're growing up, you're having this, uh, kind of this, um, problems in New York and your mom moves you across the country. So you said they were split up. So yeah, they were, they were divorced at the time. They'd been split for a number of years and then divorced. Um, my dad is a super successful human being. My mom as well, but my dad is an Academy award winning documentary filmmaker. Um, he has done, um, he's a world champion ice boater, which is a sailboat on ice skates that races around frozen lakes um, in the Northeast. He has done, um, he has flown, built and flown model airplanes and been a champion at model airplane gliders that are like one-tenth scale of a regular uh, glider. 
and just all different, all different kinds of stuff, but hyper focused on those tasks and kind of ignored me a lot, a, a little bit of the time to focus, 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 focus. Right. Um, my mom on the other side is this super um, loud and and kind of gregarious lady who was one of America's first international supermodels, and she was part of a trio of sisters called the Hall Sisters. And so, you know, there's her and there's Rosie Hall and Jerry Hall and Jerry Hall is my aunt and Jerry Hall was married to Mick Jagger and now is married to Rupert Murdoch who developed Fox. So the the family dynamic is crazy. is crazy. My mom goes on a cruise ship one one random day uh, a few months before my move to California and she meets a a guy with long flowing white hair um who tells her that he's a jazz musician and he has, he leads the magic John blues band. So she ends up falling in love with this guy, moving me over to California where she marries him without even telling me. And she, this, this gentleman who becomes my stepfather raises me. And I want you to picture the person that raised me because it's really interesting. So this guy has this long flowing white hair and looks like Albert Einstein, but he tells everybody he's American Indian he smokes a peace pipe. He has fires, unregulated fires in the backyard of our home, like just absolutely out there, way out there. And the times he wanted to have the fires were when it was raining the hardest in the Glendale Hills. Like, what is going on? Wow. So, so that my upbringing from the age of about 13 on was completely different. I didn't get to like walk outside of my building and get into trouble with dozens of kids, which is right. what happens in New York. I could take 30 steps and be in the middle of trouble. You know, I had to wait for a ride. I had to, I, my house was kind of isolated. And so I found the game of football and football helped me to kind of become a little bit more calm, streamline what's going on and have a better understanding as to how to be a part of a functioning uh, community. But going home to them was interesting. It was interesting home life. I mean, I've never heard the side of you before. That's yeah. very interesting. So, um, okay. So growing up in this type of environment where you have all this, it seems like your parents are both like they're both have their own way of um, how you say like it's almost like attention like they have their own attention mm-hmm. seeking stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like they had any like it's you were pretty out there when it comes oh, to like yeah. social media and all these things? Do you feel like that's kind of imparted its way onto, onto you where you're at right now? Like this whole like it's attention, like yeah. having attention, being in the forefront of things, being online, being open, being yeah. on. You know, you know. I think that my mom. Uh, I think I think both of my parents are not like me. My dad never seeked attention. Everything he did was behind closed doors, and he never he never looked for recognition, which in all of that was mind-blowing to me because if I was in Robin Lehman's shoes, I would be seeking recognition like there was no tomorrow. Like that's just the personality that I've kind of had. Right. Well, my mom, um, she was somebody that was always – you know, smart and good looking. And so people kind of looked, looked to, 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 to want to meet her and hang out with her. I mean, she dated John Travolta. Like, so my mom is like, right. Like you think about these different ideas. My mom has always kind of been, um, kind of like the party animal person. Right. So I think I almost have a balance between the hardworking father and then this flamboyant mother, if that makes sense. So I, it kind of, I could see that kind of yeah. brings it together in, in making it happen. But now when it comes to me wanting to be out there, I feel in the beginning it was what I've learned is kind of the little boy in me seeking attention. And then now I'm starting to taper it back to where I want to be able to put stuff um, out to the public that's going to help people. 
And so now it's, I believe it's purpose driven instead of just kind of look at me, help me build my ego, help me. Right. Cause that's how it was in the beginning. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you found football over here. Did you not play football in New York? No, nah, not at all. Uh, I think I played one season in New York, um, but it was cold and wet and just didn't, it, it wasn't really my thing in New York, but I think I played Pop Warner. I did. And there was no weight limit in New York. So I come back to California, and there's a weight limit for, for Pop Warner football, and I was way north of the weight limit. So I couldn't play Pop Warner, so I played flag football for a year or two, and that got me into high school where I started playing tackle football. And then from there, I uh, started playing a little bit more football after that. Did you go to college playing football? I did. I played football at the University of South Florida. Okay, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and were you was like a scholarship kind of thing? Yeah, it was. Go? A, yeah, I got a, I got a, I got scholarship offers to different schools across the country and the University of South Florida. I'm a mama's boy, um, and at heart. And so the offers. My, my mom had asked me to stay in in Florida because she was planning on moving to Florida. So hey, could you take this scholarship in Florida? So what I did was I went to Syracuse University on a on a. Um, visit you get five official visits through the nc2a so they take you out on the weekend and they literally make you feel like a celebrity like they surround you with pretty ladies and they feed you food like four or five times a day at these huge buffets this amazing places they take you into the stadium and they put your name up on the stadium and they're like you know now starting at right guard and they tell you you know jason lehman and you're like and there's crowd noise wow. and you're in this middle of this stadium it's like really really interesting so i went out there for syracuse and that was the first visit I went on. And Syracuse, no, I think it might have been my second. And Coach Pasquinelli, I'll never forget the coach's name, he sits with me in a skybox where we're overlooking the, um, the, the orange dome, I think it was what it's called, at Syracuse. And Syracuse is as big a football as it gets in the Big East at this time. And um, so he says, hey, um, look down there. And I look, and he says, I just want you to know something. I said, what? He says, there's going to be thirty-five to 40,000 fans looking down at Jason Lehman wearing a jersey that says number at the time it was 65, number 65, starting at right guard in Syracuse next year. I just want to make sure that you see the same thing I do. And I was like, like talk about sales pitches, right? I was like, yeah, I guess I, I mean, yeah, sound, it sounds right. For lack of a better term, it's kind of sexy, right? Like, this is legit. Like, I like this. And um, he said, do you, want the, do you want the scholarship? And I said, yeah, but it wasn't. The signing date hadn't happened yet, so you, you have to, everybody has to sign on the same day for fairness. So you couldn't sign early, but you could give a verbal commitment. So I gave a verbal commitment to him that I was not going to do any more visits or sign up with any more schools, um, and I was going to commit to Syracuse. That way they don't have to look for an O-lineman anymore. They can, I've committed to them. They right. can stop looking. Well, I was not the most, most ethical human being in, in, under those terms. I think I went on two or three more visits, and one of them was South Florida. Well, the University of South Florida offered me a scholarship. Another scholarship that got offered was Ohio State. So I'm sitting here with these scholarships trying to think about all these different things. So on signing day, I had told my mom I would think I would consider Florida. And I always liked, I kind of liked having my mom around. So on signing day, I'm sitting there and I was so selfish. I'm sitting on the, on like right next to the bed of my buddy uh, Lloyd. Who, who had a number of scholarship offers, but he had blown his knee out at the end of the season. So his he had zero scholarship offers. So I'm sitting on that bed, and I'm holding South Florida and Syracuse and looking to sign one of them. And both teams are calling me. Hey, man, you got to be awake now. Like, you got to fax this over. we got to get this going, right? So I'm like, all right, which one am I going to sign? Which one am I going to sign? 
And I'm looking at Lloyd going, man, I can't figure this out, man. Like, you know, there's pros and cons and that. And Lloyd goes, hey, man, can you stop this shit? I don't have any scholarship. Can you just pick one? You're sitting here talking to a guy who's hurt with no scholarship, and you're acting so selfish. Like, pick your school and let's go. I'm excited for you, but let's do it. And it just, like, it knocks sense into me. And those those knocking sense of those aha moments, I've always looked for those moments. Like, later on in my last few years, I've always looked for those aha moments to help me grow. Right. And that was a big growth moment. So that's how I ended up going to South Florida. Is I signed with South Florida, ended up going there, and... What an amazing experience to uh, play in Raymond James Stadium and be a part of such a, a high functioning team. And and not only that, but you know, I did I did I did start trying to focus on school uh, when I got in there and got degrees in interpersonal communication uh, and criminology. And the communication thing has really helped me throughout my life, and that's why I'm seeking to try and get my doctorate in communication uh, here within oh, wow. the next few years. Yeah. So you're in Florida. Is your is your mom now there at this time? <laughs> she never moved. <laughs> So, so she convinces you to go and then she doesn't go. Never, never, never move. So yeah, she convinced me to go there. Um, I loved it, but yeah, she never, never went to Florida. So, um, that was, you know, my, my Florida situation, uh, that was pretty much it. I, I thought I could play, you know, football afterwards and it just didn't work out. I just, it was one of those situations that, um, I, I just wasn't good enough. And I thought, I thought I had a chance and that was, that was that. So I packed my stuff up and moved back cross country to California and when I was back in California, for some reason, I decided I wanted to go to EMT school. So I had have some I had had some money saved up. So I go to EMT school at UCLA, and I start working on the transport ambulance for the LA County Fire Department, but for a private company called uh, AMR. And when I was working for this company, the firefighters would we would come in, and it would be just like kind of like a um, a basic life support unit for certain cities in Southern California that are attached to the city. Right. So when that basic life support unit shows up, there's very little value in those human beings. Um, and I would be called AMR instead of Jason. Like, hey, AMR, come here. AMR, uh, strip this bag. AMR, move this person. And I saw myself fight. Um, firefighters every once in a while like in my head i was gonna fight them because i was so mad at being called amr they couldn't value the name on my chest like my name is you know it's spelled out here and uh it was interesting that i thought about becoming a firefighter at that time and then i realized that you know i didn't want to put wet stuff on red stuff like three times a year i wasn't a very good cook i didn't really want to hang out with a dalmatian I didn't know how to shine a truck for two hours a day. I didn't want to sit in a recliner and get paid. And I didn't want to walk around a grocery store with a really, really loud radio so everybody could hear it just to wait for a call so I could roll my groceries into the side of the grocery store and take off to go help somebody because they got toe pain or something like that. So for me, the fire department wasn't wasn't for me, especially because I didn't really know how to work a stripper pole. And every time I walked into a firehouse, I always saw this pole. And I was like, <laughs> so let's be, let's be honest. That sounds like a pretty good job right now. It is, yeah. I well, mean, the truth is, you know, I, I have the ability, the unique opportunity to train um, public safety members in all different realms, in fire and in police. And when I tell firefighters um, this similar story, that's how I tell police officers, right? right? Police officers get a kick out of it. When I talk to firefighters, I tell them, I think what might kind of hold true in some aspects of my life when I think about where I where I went and I tell him, you know, when I stood in the two lines between police and fire, I'm, I just stood in the wrong line. I'm sorry about that. And so they they laugh about that uh, that that process. But no, there's a huge opportunity um, that the fire department uh, gives us. And when and is that my fault? No way. And when they give us that that opportunity, it's not mine. 
<laughs> uh, another on here. Yeah, yeah. And when they give us that, when when the fire department gives us that opportunity, what they do is they afford us um, the opportunity to um, help us medically. And we we sit here and we worry about the uh, the fire service and make fun of the fire service and poke fun at the fire service as police officers. But really, we need each other. The fire department needs the police, and the police need the fire department. So. You know, I, I really enjoyed working with firefighters um, and training firefighters. They're a very different animal than a police officer. Um, but at the heart of police officers and firefighters, we all care to and have, a, have a heart for service. So I could see that. Uh, well, I agree with you about that. Uh, it's funny because I get I got to work really close with the fire department when uh, COVID hit, c- kicked off. You know, we got really well integrated. And that was a really good experience, just making a lot of relationships. So, but I think it's funny. There's there is a uh, back and forth with police and fire a lot, and that like contention is a little bit there sometimes on calls. Um, but even going there is you said like as a BLS unit and not getting feeling respected could have potentially even kind of made your mindset. I'm like maybe maybe that changes your mind of where you want to go, like where you want to go in life and what you want to do. Um, so going back a little bit when you were te- you were coaching football out here in California, mm-hmm. and you made some different contacts with police and one was in a bar when you're talking about this whole fighting with somebody in a bar. And that brought me, I was, when you're telling that story, I was thinking about when you're a kid getting in trouble and then you're still an adult getting in trouble. Um, but you're now being trying to be mentored, but you're, you're in their bar with another police officer or with a police officer mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. What do you see yourself like doing? You see this guy doing this and interacting with you this way. How do you see yourself going from this kind of like, aggressive human being at the time and transforming into like, Hey, community policing, yeah. uh, recognize, uh, you know, ex national expert kind of thing. Like, yeah. where does it go? Like there's a huge transition there. Yeah. There's, I mean, there, there's a lot of stories that lead us into where I've gotten today. But when we think about that act, um, literally that was a mistake in that fight. It's a, it's a very long story, but to give you the one minute version, me and my cousin were two big guys, right? I'm, that my, my doctor just told me, by the way, that I'm not overweight because I'm six foot four and I'm north of 300 pounds. And when I went to my doctor a few weeks ago, he's like, Jay, you're not overweight. And I was mind blown. And he tried to explain to me the importance of understanding that I'm just way too short for my weight. I should be like 10 foot eight. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. But we walk into this bar, big guys, and we, and to come to find out, this is like a cop bar in the area. And at night it's occupied by cops and just a couple of the neighborhood bar goers. Well, we had walked in to play shuffleboard at this bar, and right before we walked in, some college-age kids had come in, and they were being rowdy in the bar. Well, some off-duty police officers that were already in the bar had pushed these kids out of the bar, kind of asked them to leave because they were being too rowdy. The kids looked back and said, we're coming back with our big guys. So five minutes later, coincidentally, me and my cousin walk in the bar. Well, one of the cops that was there calls a very, very strong and aggressive gang sergeant and says, get over here right now. These big guys are about to go at it with us. So when we walked in, it was like a cowboy saloon. Every, everything stopped. Every, everybody looked at us, and we were like, what's going on? Right when we had squashed the issue, a pit bull of a human being comes running through the door. And um, this guy comes through, and he, without question, jacks me up over the shuffleboard, and we start hitting each other. Well, he won, and that's how the fight happened. So it wasn't like I was being an aggressive human being in that situation, but what led me to want to get further into police work was not that aggressiveness. It was the fact that I went on ride-alongs with that gang unit, and when I went on those ride-alongs with the gang unit, 
I saw the teamwork atmosphere, uh, the teamwork atmosphere. So I saw, you know, perimeters and responses to shootings and these different things that I got to see from inside of the police car of a gang unit. Now, a gang unit back then does police work a lot differently than a patrol officer did back then. So when I went through the academy, it was a shell shock my first day on patrol. I was like, wait, this is not like I saw in a gang unit. And so there was, a, there was an interesting struggle that started happening with me there. Um, but that's, again, another story. So, All right. So you get on the police department. And uh, tell us a little bit about your career, just the overall career. And then I want to know, like, how you got into why you stop me. Okay. So I started off in the police department in 2006 and worked patrol for a very, very short amount of time, less than two years. Got onto a gang and violent crime divisional suppression, t- or gang and violent crime suppression team on the divisional level called direct enforcement. Um, worked direct enforcement for a number of years. I took a break from direct enforcement for about a year um, and went up north and worked in North Division. And I worked on a graveyard patrol team, but I was immediately special detailed to an auto theft task force because there was some funding to special detail some officers to work auto theft. So I worked auto theft um, for the majority of that year and then came back onto the direct enforcement team. And I spent a total of six or seven years on direct enforcement. Then from there, I went back into patrol, worked patrol for a short amount of time, and then got picked up as what was create a position that was created by that by the police department called uh, the community engagement officer, and that was once Why'd You Stop Me had really gotten up off the ground, and they wanted me to build out some Why'd You Stop Me concepts with the police agency to try and help build and improve upon community engagement strategies. Really, so I worked very closely with the chief of police in doing that, um, and then became a part time public information officer and. I know what you're thinking right now. I, I really have a face for radio, but not a face for TV. So I, somehow I pulled it off, um, did that for a little bit, and then I took a test and promoted to sergeant. And it's really important, I think, for the listeners to know that rank is truly somebody that is passing an interview or a test. It has nothing to do with leadership. Leadership is intrinsic. Like Leadership is in somebody, and they, it develops over time. But there are plenty of police officers right now for the agency I used to work with that would be better sergeants than some of the sergeants that exist right now at that agency. It's just that for some reason they're, they haven't taken the test or they're not good test takers. And because they're not good test takers, they don't make it into that supervisory role or sergeant role. So no chief of police is, to me is more special than a rank and file officer. It just means that they tested well, they had some leadership abilities, and they kept moving. Now, when I meet the chief, and I, and I experience the way the chief is, then you start understanding the leader that that person is, if that makes sense. It makes so, sense. You know, well, I always say, like, it doesn't, you know, depending on where you land on a list, it's a list. Mm-hmm. And you can be number one on the list and be a terrible supervisor yeah. and terrible leader. And you could be the last guy on the list and be lucky enough to be promoted. And you could be the best the guy best. on that list, guy, a gal on that list, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then hopefully continue your career and whatever it is. But, uh, yeah, it really doesn't t- – just because you pass the test doesn't mean you're, a, like you said, a good leader. Yeah. But, yeah, interesting that you say that about uh, recognizing that. I think that we put a lot of stock into rank, mm-hmm. like especially in our department – like in our divi- – sorry, in our uh, – what am I saying? Careers uh-huh. in, in law That's enforcement. Right. That's right. So you see a guy with stars on or a guy with bars on, and you're immediately like, oh, you act differently. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're they going to be different. You're going to be different. You act differently like I to – Guess to, you know, be yeah, more polished sure. or whatever versus just treating them like another human being that you're going to engage with. Um, and I've been lately, I've been finding some people in positions of rank 
and seeing them act like a normal, like I'm gonna say the word normal, like mm-hmm. more of a human being. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like that ability to do that. Like I like that ability to be at a higher level rank, but, but not act like you're better than everybody. That's right. You know? That's so right. I think that's very important. Yeah. And I think one thing that we struggle at in law enforcement is we get brought, we get bred into this paramilitary organization, which doesn't allow us to be ourselves as an officer, but it also doesn't always allow us to be ourselves as a Lieutenant or a commander. And I, I will say this time in and time again when it comes to wellness, and I have expertise on wellness. When it comes to wellness, the closer we can be Adam at home and then still be Adam at work, the easier our life is and the more longevity we have in our life. Because when I have to go and be Adam at home and then I put on my uniform and now I'm Sergeant Sturgeon, you people below me look up to me and the people above me I respect and I have to show I have to act a certain way. The conversion process takes a toll on your brain. Now I got to convert back from Sergeant Sturgeon, right? Because I'll bet you that Sergeant Sturgeon doesn't work at home. Your lady's not like, hey, I'm going to deal with Sergeant Sturgeon. It just doesn't happen, right? So when we have, when we make that conversion process, things are a little bit hindered. So I'm real big into trying to help the culture to change a little bit to where we understand the leadership roles that exist and we understand um, the fact that there is that uh, hierarchical structure that we have to respect, but for us to be able to just communicate more freely across these, um, these you know, rank structure uh, limit lines, kind of. So, yeah. yeah. And I think if you show, like, even as an officer, like there are officers that like you said that they could be great leader. And I say they are great leaders, but they could be at a rank level sure. leadership if they wanted to be and they're not. But maybe they choose not to be. Um, but people respect their opinion. Even people of, of rank respect That's their right. opinion because they've shown that time and time again. And I, and I really like seeing that, I like seeing the camaraderie between various ranks and seeing people who have rank um, talk to people who don't mm-hmm. or who have lesser rank and actually ask for feedback and, and accept it and use it and grow from it. You know, I think it's important. Yeah, I just had a police chief a few weeks ago reach out to me and he said, hey, I, uh, I want to run something by you. And my question was, you know, you're running something by a um, retired sergeant. And he said, yeah, I look up to you as a man. I've always looked up to you. And this is a police chief from the organization I work at. I worked at before. And he now runs a different organization. And he said, you know, what do you think about um, about the use of body cam footage for the positive on social media? And I said, man, I've been pushing for that since body cam footage came out. Because police agencies, they, they don't really want to go away from the way they've always done it. That's a big statement, especially at the executive level. Like, we've all, why, why are we doing this? We've always done it that way. <laughs> well, that doesn't make any sense because yeah. doing the exact same thing every day and expecting different results is the definition of insanity, right? So I just, I just don't really get it. So he looked to me, and he really empowered me by saying, I'm looking to you not as a sergeant. I'm looking to you as a leader. And that leader doesn't fall in that rank system. You're just a leader, right? And so that's where one thing I'd like to see change in the academies is that in the academies, we should help people to understand their leaders, their leaders, their leaders. And I don't think we utilize that term very much in the academy. I think in the academy, you follow your FTO, you follow your sergeant, and you fall into rank, right? right. You're kind of a leader of the community, but we don't talk about being leaders within the organization. And we have to develop um, agencies that have this um, ability to um, be entrepreneurs and build from the inside and learn from 
you know, the Adam Sturgeons, right? This would be a great opportunity for the agency that you work for to start their own podcast and to see what the value is in this podcast. I mean, how cool would it be if the, if each agency had a podcast where they talked about important stuff and the officers had an opportunity to listen to that once a month or something? That's right. really quite a cool deal. You highlight agency, highlight officers and highlight people. And I, I think that's awesome. So I think that's a good idea. I like that idea. Well, the idea that you said about the, um, body cameras mm -hmm. because we always see when officers mess up and we rarely see like, I mean, there are times we do see it in maybe other, other departments or other States, but where we push it out of like, Hey, this is a way that we look at them deescalating the situation mm -hmm. or look at them the way they are treating the community, the community on a day. This is their normal daily basis. Not the one use of force that happened this week or yeah. whatever. This is, this is a million calls that we've dealt with this week. And let's, let's show a couple of those for sure. I think, yeah. I think that's a really good, good idea. Yeah. And then that, that uh, the other, the flip side of it is, Oh my gosh, if we do that, then we set a standard that we have to release everything. Well, guess what? Who cares if you have to release everything? If a police officer does the wrong thing, we have the agency has to release it anyway, for the most part, and police officers shouldn't be doing the wrong thing. So, well, then it's open for interpretation. Well, then we write something about it, right? Like there's ways to do this, but there are so many positive community engagement opportunities that are, that are taking place in major cities like the, like the agency that we work for. That is just incredible. There are so many and they're missed because you're not able to highlight them, you know, in the public utilizing right. I believe the number one trust building tool today is social media um, and mass media. So we're missing that opportunity. And I'll, I'll ask, I'll tell everybody, whoever wants to go to check out the Hermosa Beach social media page, um, they just did an amazing piece of police officers body cam footage running up and saving an autistic child who had, who had gotten away from their parents who was about to jump off the Hermosa Beach Bridge and the child could not swim. And the child has one leg over. And they literally full sprint over to this child and pull the child up over the bridge. The child was a nonverbal autistic young man. And uh, wow. it was absolutely incredible. And they set a narrative, right? They, they put the video up. They, they set a narrative as to what was going on. And that makes people want to become police officers in a time where it's hard to want to become a police officer. Yeah. So it was pretty, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, we do need to do something for, especially for recruitment. Something yeah. needs to happen because they're, they're not getting quality enough quality candidates to, to build their classes or even have an, an academy class. Um, okay. So during this career, you said like you were, um, you were putting the community engagement office, but that's really stemmed from like we talked about kind of mentioned earlier on the, why do you stop me? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a nonprofit that you created, but it didn't start as a nonprofit. It started as just a, uh, just a, a talk, day, a random day. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about that. Like how did it start? <clears throat> well, so there's a lot to this, but to cut it down, I walked into a classroom one day, um, in a local high school in the city that I work in, worked in. And in that classroom, I walked in there because I had been taken off of the streets because of a threat that was made on the team that I worked on that they were going to ambush and kill us um, on, a, on another day um, inside of a park. So that that's a whole nother story, but we don't have to really touch on that. But the the importance of it was that, 
I had gotten into a deadly force situation a few years prior, and I had been known as kind of a heavy-handed police officer who worked in the gray area. And I'm embarrassed to say that, but that was kind of the reputation that I had gotten. Um, some of the gang members had nicknamed me Tiny, and there's nothing tiny about me, but there's another story <laughs> behind that. Um, so I walked into this high school, and when I walked into this high school, I was asked by the assistant principal to speak to a group of kids and talk to them about police community relations. And I don't know exactly to this moment. I can't figure out or remember exactly how this conversation started for me to go in there. But I walk into this room full of kids, and I start speaking to them about why police officers do what they do. Like, why do police officers point guns at people? Why do so many show up on a call? Why are there so many guns pointing at somebody? Why is it mandatory for a police officer to take somebody from standing, take their dignity away, and make them crawl? Why is it that police officers squeeze body parts when they are in the process of handcuffing? Because all of those things I'm saying are very, very abnormal to somebody that hasn't gone through a police academy. They're just not known, no matter who it is. Me and you, we didn't learn about that stuff until later, right? Right. So... Um, I walk in, I tell them all that, and I get interrupted about an hour into the conversation. Now, mind you, in my head, I'm having this conversation for a couple of reasons. Number one, the assistant principal um, was that same guy, um, Lloyd, who was sitting on that bed when I was trying to make a decision oh, really? to play football, uh, what, what, what school to go to. So it's kind of weird. So you, right? knew, you knew him for a while. Yeah, I knew him for quite a while. We were best friends. So I went in there. I trusted him enough for me to go in there and talk because I'd never really wanted to be like a public speaking guy at that time. It was not not my thing. So we go in there and we start speaking to him. We start explaining what's going on. And at the end of this hour, a kid stood up in the back of the room and he asked me, um, Tiny, do you remember me? Now, I hadn't like said, do you have any questions or anything like that? Like I was just busy hearing myself talk. Like, I was just talking about my fears and why we do what we do. He stood up and interrupted me. And I said, and usually if somebody looks at you and they say, hey, uh, officer, you remember me from a few years back? It's not usually good. It's usually like a scary situation. So he said, uh, you know, I got to tell you something. I said, what? He said, today's the first day I can say I respect the cop. And I was mind blown. And I said, why? He said, I always thought cops stopped me just because I was black. He said, in my neighborhood, that's what people tell me. That's what my parents have raised me to believe, that cops just mess with people because they're black or Hispanic. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, today you explain why you do what you do. And I've never known that. Now, this 17-year-old kid looks at me and says, you arrested me with a gun in my waistband two years ago. And I was like, oh, okay. He said, do you remember? Now, in Long Beach, there's a lot of guns, and it's nothing special. It's not like a police officer patting themselves on the back. But those the directed enforcement teams that I had been on, those teams – one of their big responsibilities is to go be proactive and try and get guns off the street. And so they're pretty effective at doing that in Long Beach. I didn't remember the situation, so he reminded me. He said, hey, it was across the street from the school, and it was raining that day. He said, I was holding the hand of my first girlfriend. And when I was holding the hand of my first girlfriend, I was, I was taking a walk with her to go on my first date. And my mom had just bought me some real nice clothes for me to go on this date. And right then and there, you and your homeboys got out and pointed guns at me. And it's really weird to think about the impact that guns have on people. And a lot of times police officers don't stop to think. They just, police officers point guns at people almost every day. And you stop, you kind of desensitize yourself to what it feels like to look down the barrel of a gun. And you just think it's safety. Well, it's real scary on the other side. So he explained this to me. He said, uh, you point a gun at me, you made me get on my knees. It was raining that day. I had to crawl through the wet rain until you dropped your knee on my back. And he actually said, your fat ass knee on my back. 
He said, you handcuffed me and one of your homeboys swept me away and pulled me away. He said, I hadn't seen you until today. He said, and uh, that was a, an issue for me. He said, there was three things that I've always wanted to tell you about this stop. Like I've thought about these three things. And today you did a real good job of speaking about you, but you didn't do a good job of speaking about me. Probably because you didn't take, you haven't taken very much time to think about me or to think for your community. So let me tell you about the three things. He said, number one, I was holding the hand of my first girl and I was raised never to be disrespected in front of a woman. He said, you made me get down on my knees and crawl and you didn't tell me why. And you put my hands behind my back, you handcuffed me and you pulled me away. He said, that was pretty disrespectful. And he ended every single one of these questions with a question back to me. So his question to me was, I was raised to be disres- I was raised never to be disrespected in front of a woman. Weren't you tiny? And the second question was, the second issue was, my mom was, ac- he explained, my mom was across the street and she was watching what happened. And as she was watching what happened, um, I got swept away and a police officer went over to my mom. When I got out of detention, my mom explained to me what that police officer said. And this is what she said. This is what the police officer said. Um, hey, your son's getting arrested for having a gun. He'll call you in a couple hours. And this kid, after telling me that, he looked at me and he became very animated. And he said, my mom wanted to know more, Tiny. Wouldn't yours? And then the third question was a situation around this idea of the gun. He said, for the last hour, you've been talking about how important it is for you to stay safe and all this officer safety stuff. And this is why you squeeze fingers. And this is why we get, we get down. And this is why we put our, hand on the, uh, our hands on the hot hood of the car. And all these officer safety things that you keep stressing. He said, but I want you to know that that gun that I had, and I had a gun, but that gun wasn't for you. And I was like, wow. I didn't really think about that. I said, why? He said, where I'm raised, the last thing I want to do is to try and hurt a cop because that shut down operations. And I was raised that way from a little kid. Like when you mess with a cop, the cops come, come in and they will start shutting down the operations in that neighborhood. And I didn't want that. That gun was to protect my family. My brother had just been shot at the base of the apartment complex right there. And my baby sister was inside the house. And my mom, who was on the sidewalk, lived there. I had to protect my family because my older brother had just been shot and killed. He said, if that happened to you, wouldn't you be carrying a gun, Tiny? And I'll tell you what, I was mind blown. Those three things really blew my mind because they showed me the way that certain inner city community members may be thinking on the other side of a police contact, right? It's kind of their why. And uh, ultimately, the kid at the end said, hey, uh, I really appreciate this. I had plans. I had thought about hurting you before. And I don't know what his involvement was with the prior um, you know, threats. But he said, I'm not going to hurt you, and nobody in this room is going to hurt you. As a matter of fact, I respect you, and I got your back. He said, thank you for your time. And then he, fi- he finalized it with saying, you can go now. And the kid kicked me out of the classroom. I couldn't say anything else. I literally tucked tail. Me and the partner I had with me at the time, we walked out of the classroom, and the assistant principal said, man, that was great stuff. You got a program. And I said, what? He said, man, you captivated an audience, and you don't even know how I found these kids. Like, these kids were trying to run out of campus. They were lingering in the hallways, and I just put them into a room with you. And uh, you had this conversation, and you had them captivated. He said, this was, this was a good talk. You actually told these kids why police do what they do, and nobody else is really doing that. And uh, he ultimately told me that without, an authority, without authority figures in your life who understand um, what's, what's normal in authority— these kids don't ever aren't ever told 
really how to cooperate with authority systems. So he said, give me a name for a program. I said, there's no name. He said, now give me something. I said, well, I can't think of anything. I really, Adam, I was stumped. Like my, my hamster in his wheel was done running. So I had no name of this program. It was just a talk. He's like, give me something for the website. I said, man, these kids always want to know why they got stopped. So <laughs> call it, why'd you stop me? So that's how Why'd You Stop Me was formed. And to date, we've trained 40,000 community members in 22 cities and five states, teaching them uh, how to work together to achieve their greatness. We call it a TAG program. So our community training programs are TAG. And we've what does TAG stand for? Together Achieving Greatness. Okay. And so we do these programs at inside of jails, inside of prisons. We do them with parole and probation. Well, I, I don't know how many of your listeners would understand this, but there used to be a felony crime in California. That's when there was big crimes. We've kind of cut that down a little bit. So parole is kind of diminished, and parole used to supervise um, people that got out for these felonies. But um, we also do it as a, a reentry system. We have it in uh, the seventh and ninth grade levels uh, in different cities. And then we just come in and put on independent talks uh, for youth and for adults to teach them how to cooperate with the police. But not only that, because that the cooperation can feel weighing. But when you understand that you can cooperate now and complain later and affect change, we also teach them about the internal and external affairs reporting processes to be able to, to get police officers um, to expose police officers that may be doing it wrong because our math says that in any business, one in 12 people aren't very good at their job. And so when it comes to law enforcement, those same numbers hold true. One in 12 people aren't very good at their job. And so um, it, it's incumbent upon the community to report that type of stuff. Um, then on the flip side from there, it kind of springboarded and Why'd You Stop Me became um, the, right now what is the number one procedural justice training for police officers by a private presenter in the state of California. So we're approved by Peace Officer Standards and Training, which is the governing body for law enforcement that deals with police training. They deal with a basic academy training all the way through the end of a police officer's career. And they have um, allowed us to train and we now train police officers up and down the state of California. And to date, um, on post-certified training, we've trained about 7,000 police officers in the state. So um, wow. great opportunity to do that. We've trained officers from, from about 60 different police agencies um, and conducted trainings uh, up and down the state. So that's, that's kind of where Why'd You Stop Me has been going, and that's kind of how Why'd You Stop Me got formed. There's so much more to it, but yeah. that's, that's the system. So that's a big change from like just an hour speech or however long you're in this classroom to now you're training community members and police officers statewide yeah. or nationwide? Well, nationwide? we've done some national work. I, I think that when you say nationwide, it's somebody that goes out and goes across the nation on a regular basis. So I think we're more regional um, than nationwide, but we have spoken and trained in Texas, Florida, New Jersey, um, and Nevada, uh, and, and then here in California. All right. Um, so there's got to be a learning curve here. So your first hour, first day, first hour, first speech, you just, you're telling them like, this is what we do. We do. And you really honestly, I probably didn't even care to hear the other side of it until this guy maybe stood up mm -hmm. and spoke. Um, so now you found, maybe find value in that ability. Oh, Hey, other people have their side of the story mm -hmm. too. And I want to, even though they might have a side of a story, why they're carrying a gun, police officers are still going to do what they're going to do sure. to make sure they're safe and make sure the community is safe. And people are still going to get arrested for having guns. It's not going to change that no. regardless of the reason for doing it, but you still are hearing a why now from the other side. Um, I'm curious when you're doing like these parole and probation uh, trainings or even community member trainings or kids, what other, what other uh, stuff came up for them? Like, I can't imagine they were all like, Oh yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of stuff came up? Like, there's there any stories you can remember of like oh, maybe sure. somebody stepping up and being like, is BS or whatever? Sure. You know, I was in San Jose, California. I think it was 2014. 
and I was speaking to a young man named Ernest. And uh, before the training, so the training team doesn't wear anything that's, that shows law enforcement. So uh, it, the, the logo is actually a graffiti logo. It's like spray-painted W-Y-S-M. It's a graffiti logo, and it, it's so interesting um, that we have that. But this young man was talking, was talking down to the police about it. it uh, with me and within the first five minutes and this was supposed to be a mayor's gang task force group so these are people that are involved somehow in gangs we probably had 60 people in a gymnasium and we're training them and there's a 13 year old that stands up five minutes into the training and he says f the police and uh i was like oh right like i'm, I'm thinking does he know i'm a cop well he didn't know i was a cop so then i we he gets sat down he stays in the training he goes through the training and at the end of the training, um, he ends up realized, well, by the end of the training, he had realized I was a police officer. And I speak to him at the end of the training. We actually have a video of our conversation, which is pretty epic. But I ask him what he thought about the police before the training. And he says it again, F the police. He's not scared to cuss. And I said, well, what do you think about it now? And he literally says, you know, the police officers are here to exist and here to protect protect us. And I, I, it almost seemed scripted. It was so crazy. But I, it, that helped me to realize that in very, very small time frames, if we care, we make a lot of impact on a day-to-day basis. But in very, very small time frames, if we stop caring, we make a lot of big impact in our communities. And most of the time, police officers are doing it right. I'd say 99% of the time. But that 1% has such an explosive um, perception by the community as to what we're doing and, and makes us think differently. So it takes, it's incumbent upon us for us to go back and make those changes. So during these trainings, there's been a lot of people that have been resistant and they've asked probing questions. And as long as I and my team have known how to answer those questions, they have some aha moments and they're able to kind of change some of the way they think. Now we have in, in the resistant community, let's say there's somebody that walks into that room and they really don't like the police. We're probably only going to have a, a positive longstanding impact with one in 10 people. So it's not going to change the world, but over time, that 10% continues to grow because that 10% now are the, the young kids or young adults that are raising people. And now they're raising them to try and reduce the number of people that don't get it or don't understand, right? So uh, that, that's kind of how the system works. But yeah, there's been a lot of, a lot of people that were, were resistant. There's a, a young lady named Jasmine Simpson, and I love bragging about her. She came into the training in Wilson High School high on marijuana and half drunk. And when she came in um, as a sophomore, she, it, I think it was her second or third day the semester that she actually showed up, and it was like two or three months into the semester. And um, she sat down, and I selected her to go through one of our scenarios. I brought her up on stage, and we're talking about 600 kids in this auditorium. And she went through the scenario. At the end, her specific class had an assignment to write something about the training. And at the end of the training, it was supposed to be a one-page essay about the training. She came and she turned in like 13 lines to her teacher and her teacher was fed up with her right off the bat anyway. It was like, no, I'm not looking at it. And she's like, please read it, please. Well, she had found the power to write a poem and the poem uh, is entitled, I used to hate you. And she writes a poem that says, I used to hate you. I hated you because you took my dad away. I hate you because you eat donuts. I hate you because you think you run the show. And at the very bottom, it says, now I realize that you're here to protect people and that you really care I have to be able to see past the uniform. I used to hate you, but now I want to be just like you. 
And Jasmine was um, somebody that was that changed my life. So I had to fight to find her and meet her. And we started bringing her into our trainings, and she started speaking and became a community champion. But in that long-standing contact and that mentorship that was created, we built so much community trust because now her circle, she was able to explain to them how to cooperate with the community. And it wasn't just a class that they had to go through. It was her saying, no, trust me, right. or how to cooperate with the police. So trust me, this is why it is. And so you build these allies and these advocates for peace, and you do that on a on a well, what I would call a call-by-call basis. And police officers are doing it, probably can do it better sometimes, but are doing it all the time, um, you know, all over communities in Southern California and across the entire country. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine, like, just having that impact on someone. But how long did it take you to find her? Um, you know, it's funny. I was given the poem and I've had moments in my time, I guess I call them too busy moments where I have too many things to do at once and I want to be able to figure it out. So I got the poem, um, by a school resource officer, uh, and this school resource officer says, Hey, you got to read this. So I read the poem like, Oh my gosh. And then I'm like, okay, I got to find her. And for, I don't know, three or four weeks, I did not start looking for her. So by the time it was time for me to find her, um, the there was I think school had had ended the semester had ended maybe and I couldn't find her so I just started typing her name because her name was on the paper I just started typing her name into Facebook and I found a, a person who looked like high school age um, from the city and and I typed it in and I and I ended up sending her a direct message and it took her a long time to respond back to me um, and she responded back to me and next thing you know we met each other and um, we started interacting and and she started uh, really kind of coming around and being a, a big help for us to spread our message. That's cool. Yeah, we're cool. That is cool. We still keep in contact today. She has two kids. She's an awesome human being. She, yeah. So yeah, it's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So then, uh, transitioning from doing the training with community members to police officers, when, how many years was it before you started training police officers? I started training police officers in like 2016 and it was really, I was super resistant. Like I was like the resistant cop because we had come into a, a grant funding for a grant called um, Improving Police and Community Trust. It was a grant by the Board of State and Community Corrections and the BSCC in California. And they were going to award 10 cities this grant. And the grant funding was either 600000 for a single agency or 750000 for a single agency combined with the sheriff. So the Monterey County Sheriff's Department in the city of Salinas reach out to me and they say, hey, we heard about the work you're doing in San Jose and in some of the other areas and in Long Beach, um, which is a couple of different areas we'd operated in. And we want you to um, be the sole provider for this grant. And I said, OK, well, what do you want? And they said, we want you to teach the community. And I said, OK, like a couple of presentations. They're like, no, we'd like you to put on 80 presentations, like eight zero. So I'm like, eight zero. And they're like, yeah. And I said, how many cops are in Salinas? They're like, ah, about 130. I said, how many cops are in Monterey County? Oh, there's more than 300 deputies. I said, can't one of them teach the community how to cooperate? Like, why do you need me, right? And when you sit and you really ponder on that thought, what I just said, that it really outlines where the problem is in law enforcement systems today is until we find value in teaching people how we want to be treated and we hyper-focus on that, we can't expect anybody else is going to make this better. And so ultimately what they said was, can you train the community? I said, absolutely. They told me about the money. Um, the money's helpful to grow the organization. The money's helpful for all these different reasons. So I said, great, let's do it. And I went in and did presentations for the chiefs and the sheriff and stuff, and everybody was good. Well, about a, a couple of weeks before the contract was going to be signed, 
they came back to me and they said, hey, uh, Officer Lehman, can you do us a favor? I said, what? Most people are doing a law enforcement training aspect to this. Can you train 130 Salinas police officers and train the majority of the Monterey County Sheriff's Department? And my answer was on the phone. It was a phone call. My answer was very simple. Uh, my answer was no. And they were like, <laughs> what? I'm like, yeah, no, thank you. So they reminded me of the benefit of the training and, and of the value of what's going on here and, and told me that there was some stuff going on that, that would really help them. But I never wanted to train cops because, um, and I think the majority of cops would nod their head if they're listening to this, cops don't really like going to training, now, especially not when it's training that has to do just with communication or with de-escalation or stuff like that because cops think they're pretty good already. And that's kind of carries across most of the different businesses. When it's your basic skill set to communicate or basic skill set to de-escalate, going to training is hard. Um, and I can just remember when I was talking, I pictured my own face in the training that I just went to where I had to walk in at 7 a.m. to advanced officer training and just listen to people talk about things. And I, and I was like, nah. And um, they reminded me, hey, there's a lot of money for this and a lot of opportunity to grow your message. Why don't you give it a shot? Let's do this. And so we created training. And we told them yes. And we trained all of those people. And from there, the training kind of springboarded again. And um, different agencies started picking us up to do training, but it wasn't certified. It wasn't accredited. And so now that the training became, in 2019, the training became certified by California Post. Now the training has springboarded into Utah. And Utah now has a procedural justice training for law enforcement um, bill that is at the Senate Appropriations Committee as you and I are speaking today really? to see if they can pass this bill. And that would mandate that police officers, all 7,000 police officers in the state of Utah, which that's a smaller number, but Utah doesn't have as many police officers, that all of them go through the training. We're in process of talking with people in Florida about doing it there and then in New Jersey and kind of trying to springboard this training. And then one of the goals of the Lexapol organization is to bring this training into a web-based delivery format to where we can start looking at small snippets of this training as police officers prior to going going 10-8 you know, onto our shift and say, you know what, maybe I'll try that today. Maybe that's worth trying. Or, hey, I've been doing it, but here's how I could do it a little better. Or maybe I don't want to do this, right? Whatever it is, but just kind of giving them some of that, that small information. But that's how the law enforcement training kind of got rolling uh, into doing it. But I never, I never thought we would do this. I mean, now we have a nine-hour, one-day course for community policing. We have a leadership course where we partner with Andy Borello, um, who is a retired San Gabriel captain, and he's like the guru of leadership in the state of California and works with Post. We have that leadership training. Then we have a three-day train-the-trainer program for an intermediate law enforcement trainers, and it's kind of like D.A.R.E., the old D.A.R.E. Um, we provide you provide the officer with a workbook, but it's a customizable workbook, which is different than D.A.R.E., and police officers can go and customize this training to their agency and then go out and put on trainings anywhere from 10 minutes long all the way to like eight one-hour sessions where those police officers can go in and provide a community with training to be able to help reduce future acts of conflict between police and the public, which is really um, something that we have to embrace more in law enforcement. We have to understand that we have responsibility when we contact somebody as to how that person is going to cooperate next time. And that the way that we end that confident close that we have, that 122nd piece where we can give them a piece of our mind respectfully has a lot of impact on the way they're going to see the police moving forward. So that's how the law enforcement training got going. That's crazy. Yeah. And then uh, I like the idea of like train the trainer and then they can take it to their own agencies. Because that question you asked when they asked you, hey, can you do this training for our, all these community members mm -hmm. up here? And you're like, isn't someone up there qualified to do it? Yeah. 
So now it's kind of like, hey, you guys can provide that for anyone in the, in the nation, really, and they can go out into yeah. their communities and do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah, uh, we, we have a train-the-trainer for the community, but we, we're hesitant on doing a train-the-trainer for the police because when you train police trainers on how to do this, if the passion isn't, passion isn't in that police trainer to go train other cops, it dilutes the message a lot. And we don't think that any agency should be training their own cops on ethics or ethics-based engagement. Um, because I haven't been the person that has been the most well-respected um, overall in the Long Beach Police Department. So for me to go in, or in any other police department, for me to go into that that department and train is harder than, you know, let's say I'm from Santa Ana PD. If I go into Santa Ana PD and train, the Santa Ana police officers are going to think, and they're going to say, oh, you know what, I know how you used to act in year one or year two, right. and now you're telling me how do you have to be ethical and do all these things right, because we oftentimes like to judge people by their worst moment. Whether we're in a, whether we're in the role of a police officer or the role of a community member, we oftentimes remember somebody, uh, whether it be a police agency or police officer or a community member, we remember them by their worst moment. And so, um, by not giving a agency a person where their history is known and there's those worst moments are known, the person gains credibility immediately with other agencies. So I, it's our goal to try and get police officers from different agencies and community members to train cops on ethics-based and communication-based systems. That makes sense. I, I talked about, too, uh, even with this idea of, like, holding space and sitting down with somebody, I've had conversations with commanders where they're saying, like, well, what can we do to change this? And I said, you have to just do it. But you have to want to do it. Like, if you don't want to do it, then it's not going to be effective. You know, it's not going to be effective if you don't actually want to hear somebody's story. If you just are doing it just to check a box, you have to actually want to do it. So the same thing with training police officers in this community engagement stuff. If you don't want it to change, if you don't have that passion, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, but that was a good transition that you talked about. So I'm curious now. You have this uh, You have this organization, this nonprofit organization going about community policing and teaching community members and now police on the reasons why we stop people and, and being respectful to community members and how to treat the community. But going into this idea of training community members and police officers while also having a reputation in your agency of uh, being heavy-handed or working in the gray area and um, also like the attention-seeking stuff, how does that affect you with the, with not necessarily the organization but with people within, people who you're friends or people that you're coworkers with how do they see you, and how does that affect you personally? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that when it comes to the way that I did business in the beginning, I did business in the beginning the way I did. Um, one, it was not right, and I'm embarrassed by some of the things that I've done as a police officer. As a matter of fact, I've been reprimanded numerous times in internal affairs, and I, I was suspended from the job um, years ago. And... Uh, I was I was suspended from the job for an allegation of excessive force. And it's it's crazy to think about the old Jason Lehman, the Jason Lehman that I was. There were times in my law enforcement career that I probably didn't deserve to wear a badge, carry a gun, and um, work for the community that I was in. And um, I believe that God kept me in the position that God kept me in in order for me to grow and learn and make that conversion. But like I said earlier, you judge people for their worst moment and or their worst moments. And oftentimes, some of my peers, as I started doing Why'd You Stop Me, started thinking, um, started kind of creating these different ideas that I was a little bit of a hypocrite, right? Because I used to do this, and now I'm telling people not to do this. 
Well, I believe a hypocrite is somebody that doesn't admit what they used to do and then ask some, somebody to do something different. I don't think a hypocrite is when you go back and you say, hey, I used to do this and I realize now that it's not okay. Let me tell you why it's probably not a good idea to do this and let me tell you about a system I've developed that makes it better. I don't think that's hypocritical, but it appears to be hypocritical. So there were a number of police officers that started kind of shying away from Jason Lehman, right? Like, I don't know about this guy. This guy's kind of, he's gone from, you know, way over here to way over here. And I'll be one, I'll be yeah. honest, I was one of them. Yeah. You know, like I, I shied away from you in the sense of like, I don't know what, I mean, I didn't go to this training that you put on until mm-hmm. for what, six years into it or something. Yeah. And you, and you probably wouldn't have, right? Like yeah. it was like, I'd, I'd probably invite, like I invited all my classmates at some point, like, Hey, check it out. It wasn't like pushing them, but I was like, Hey, right. check it out. And the majority of the police officers that I would invite would be like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to that. Right. Because I think that they're seeing this persona that I had, I had a hand in creating. They're seeing this idea that, Hey, this is this guy that when I, when I was on scene of a call with him, he put me in a bad position. Like he was disrespectful to community members and he did things kind of not the right way sometimes. Um, and I don't want to go to his training. Like, why would I go to his training? Right. So they have these different ideas. I think now, um, and so that's what happened is there were a number of police officers that started thinking that way and then it trickled up the chain and then back down the chain. So when I say up the chain, it means like sergeants were thinking that and the lieutenants were thinking that commanders were thinking that, right? I think our, our, the chief that was my, the chief, my chief for the last few years was super supportive because the chief had sat through a number of meetings where I showed my heart and where he knew where things were going. But it, if you don't, if you just hear something on the superficial level, and you don't know much about it, what you do is you take something you know much about and you let that trump it. And what you know much about was Jason Lehman's reputation. So I don't know much about this training. It sounds kind of like a gimmick, and I'm going to let his reputation from the past trump what I, what, I, what I know a little bit about, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think that's what ended up happening is we, like I said from the beginning, we judge people on their worst moments. Um, and my job now is to help people not have those moments and to, to make those moments kind of less and lessened. Um, so if I didn't have those moments, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. Um, and I've learned now that the people that don't understand me, it's my job to expose them to learn about me and understand me, but it's not my job to, um, push it on them. And it's also not my job to care about, you know, for lack of better terms for me to care about my haters. If I didn't have haters, then I wouldn't have a, why'd you stop me organization? Right. If you didn't have haters, you wouldn't have a podcast or you wouldn't be doing the things you're doing. Like haters strengthen leaders. They strengthen leaders if the leaders allow them to strengthen them. They also break down leaders if the leaders sit there and start hyper caring about the way they think. And if the person that hates on me spends that amount of time getting better as a person, then they'll learn how important it is not to hate on people and to support people. Because the way that we grow is through our positive moments and trying to be, get better and working to get 2% better every day. I have a lot of people that I can think of right off the bat that I could think poorly of. I just, I have, there's, there's people out there. But whenever I do that, I try and check myself and I say, do I want people to think poorly of me? And do I know enough about that person to think poorly of them? Or am I judging them for what I call the 2 a.m. Vegas moment? Right? Do we want to get judged by the fact that I'm loud and boisterous or the fact that maybe I've um, been disrespectful to a few community members in Long Beach? Or do we want to judge me on the fact that on a day-to-day basis, my commitment is to help police officers and community members go home with their dignity intact and to go home safe? And that's the commitment I've made now. So if you can't get on the train with me 
that's moving. And it's this community first train where police agencies who work for a community um, and, and help to do things the right way. If you're not on that train, then you're going to get left behind. I'm still going to care for you. I'm still going to wish you the best, but I'm not going to sit there and hyper focus on that. I'm going to hyper focus on the people that do understand. And I'll tell you in my last year, I got a lot of validation as a sergeant because in my last year as a sergeant, I think that I did not have a person I supervised who would say bad things about me. And I think that that was something that was really validating to me because I had time to expose my heart to the team that I worked with. And it's just like the stuff you do in squad in briefing briefings with your team. When you're in briefings and you're saying, hey, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a, I came in here at two right now. Where are you at? You know, and you have that measurement system, right? That's where people get to see the real you and see who you are. And that, that carries into field supervision and it carries into discipline and accountability and mission and teamwork and all of these things that work. So the people that know me, know me. And the ones that don't, don't. Because of why'd you stop me, there's been a very, very big difference. And it's become this position of you either really like Jason or you kind of really don't like Jason. And that's not a lot of gray area. Yeah, there's not like I don't know about Jason. It's not really that because you have a lot of information. I mean, if you Google Jason Lehman, you, you, you type in Jason Lehman police, there's a lot of reading to do, right? And so you can sit there and read some things that are true and some things that are false. But I want now to be able to tell the people that do support me that supporting me is the right thing. And so that's why I'm out there on social media. That's why I'm giving talks. That's why I'm in the process of writing a book. And that's why I'm writing articles and all these different things, because I want people to be able to learn from my mistakes, from my failures, but also from my successes. And I think there has been a number of successes. Sometimes uh, a peer may allow the negative to trump those successes. And that's where the separation of respect or that idea of respect um, as a traditional police officer may change with certain individuals. Was there ever a time where you felt like you weren't going to be able to keep going? Like when you were doing, uh, why'd you stop me? Like with, with like the negativity with within your organization, did you yeah. ever feel like well, if I just stop doing this and I can just kind of like be a ghost or yeah. did you ever feel that thing? Or did you say it would, you just keep, because you pushed through obviously. So yeah, yeah, no, there's I, something that had to, I was wondering if it was always like, oh, I'm going to push through no matter what, or if it was ever like a question for you. No, you know, I, uh, it kind of it kind of brings me back to like 2010 2011 and um i had started like I, w- I was doing like real good cop stuff on the gang of violent crime suppression team back then there was no why'd you stop me and i'm out there doing good cop stuff i'm getting commendations i'm running around and i'm you know i'm doing things and at that moment i'm doing things the right way like the the, the wrong way police officer jason lehman was the first two or three years and then you started kind of developing into more of the right way i'm doing great stuff and uh i I'm an effective team member doing good things. And all of that was, I was kind of police first and I show up to work and I want everything that I do to work. You call me in, I'm in. You ask me for overtime, I'm there. Like everything was police work, police work, police work. Didn't have a family. I was just dating random girls. It was just a a, a time in my life where, where police work was first. Well, I would go home and on dozens of occasions, um, I would sit on my couch and I would plan and plot on how I was going to kill myself. And I, I struggled so much in that time because I didn't have any balance. And I didn't know what to do with, the, with my balance. So uh, luckily, a family member convinced me to go to therapy for the first time. Um, I had gone to therapy as a kid, um, but I had never gone to therapy as an adult. And I went to therapy, and therapy saved my life, man. And uh, when I went to therapy... Not only the conversation saved my life, but I got tools on how to be resilient 
and how to overcome post-traumatic stress because my desire to want to hurt myself for the most part was based off of the bad things, the wrongdoings I've done in the community. And that's weird and crazy to say, but I have had times where I just couldn't get those things out of my head because I knew I could have done them better. And when you know better, that then it becomes purposeful, right? So moving forward, that those tools of resiliency helped me to fight through some different moments. But I also had a lot of support from very powerful and very well-respected leaders. You know, I think you had, you, you're going to have Jimmy Foster on your show. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Foster helped me through so many difficult times and Steve James and people that when you throw these names out there, they're very well-respected people. Um, and so I had these different people that I could look to that helped me because I, there were plenty of times where I said, you know, I could go back to being that gang and violent crime suppression cop on this team and do what is in the middle. Because I don't know if this is good or bad yet. I'm still in the process of investigating this. But in law enforcement, they say that if you stay in the middle, you don't get in trouble. You kind of just go about your business, go to go about your day-to-day operations. Well, I don't know why in law enforcement everybody can't work towards excelling in excellence, right? But then you couldn't, you couldn't be fighting for the middle. So I, I'm trying to figure out what that is. But that was my thought. My thought was, you know, I could just go back to being an in-the-middle copper and give this whole thing up. You know, but when I when I set up the nonprofit organization in 2012, I put more than a hundred thousand dollars of my own money in to get it started, and that was a commitment I made financially, a commitment I made spiritually to God, a commitment I made because I felt that from like 2014 through the first few years, I felt that Why'd You Stop Me became an assignment from God, an assignment for police and the community to better unite and for us to take a non traditional role on how to do that, and that's through that non traditional role is through empowerment education when you. As a supervisor, take a complaint call, right? You take it differently when you actually care about that person. You actually sit there and you say, you know what? Let me tell you a few reasons why this happened. And if you were my mom, let me tell you how I would, would want this handled, right? And then if it's, a, if it's some type of blatant misconduct, we open, you open a case. But if not, you're educating, right? And you're educating, educating, educating. And that educational system is um, what has kept me going because my desire now is to not miss teachable moments. And if I can be a part of a teachable moment, then I don't miss it. If I can't be a part of that teachable moment, then I miss that teachable moment. So I want to have a part in it, and I want to be able to um, to affect positive change. So all those times that I've kind of been questioned or scrutinized, I mean, I went to my police agency, and I told them that I wanted to help train uh, police officers in the agency. And they said, no, thank you. And I was like, what? Like, I have a system that's being trained all up and down the state, and you don't right. want me. Well, they let the negative belief systems of who this person was trump the idea of allowing, you know, me to participate in this training. And then I said, okay, well, you know, I'd like to train in the academy. And I trained in the academy for a number of years. And then out of the blue, they said, no, thank you. No more in the academy. And I was like, wow, okay. Um, well, why is that? Oh, it's, it's too advanced for that. Your concepts are too advanced for human beings in the academy. I'm like, learning how to talk to people is too advanced. Like being a good human, right? So, and that happened. And this is not the whole agency. These are individual leaders that I believe have an issue with Jason Lehman and his boisterous self and social media and marketing and all right. of these things that became an issue. And then the next thing was, okay, so after they get out of the of their one year of probation, then, then you'll come in. Right? So we'll take you out of the academy and you'll come in after that one year of probation. And then next thing you know, oh no, there's not enough time. There's not enough time for you to come in and talk. And so it just started kind of diminishing and diminishing and diminishing. But it, I, I, the, 
the drive that keeps me going is that I wake up every day. I'm, I'm spiritual. Um, I talk to God and God says, keep on going and keep on pushing. So nothing is that I can see in the, in the near future is going to stop me from doing this. Um, it's just going to keep pushing me harder to want to keep doing it. And my, my absolute goal is to get back into that police agency that helped to, to develop me and that supported me in so many different ways. The police agency I was with supported me in so many different ways. Um, and it was just a few people that were a hindrance to my forward growth until I didn't allow them to be a hindrance anymore. And then it, then it started getting better. And when you say you didn't allow them to get hindrance, what do you mean by that? No, like if they say, hey, you're not in the academy anymore. Okay. Right? Or, hey, it I didn't keep you from pushing forward. Yeah. From doing yeah. what you need to do. Yeah. Um, and so then now going forward, like how did you decide that you were going to take it on? I guess, is it full-time or now that you're doing Lexapol, is that kind of full-time? No, which, part, which part of it is the full-time part? The, the, the why'd you stop me part is is definitely the full-time part. Um, the Lexapol part has great opportunity for growth. Um, and, you know, just, just yesterday I can, I, w- I conducted a national training, um, to outline community policing and the differences that the rank and file see from community policing versus how the administration sees community policing. Cause it's way different. It's not, it's they're right now to me, they're like night and day. Like if you heard a chief talk about community policing to a community, you would think that every police officer is out there for lack of better terms, hugging thugs and kissing babies. Like it would sound so eloquent and beautiful. But then if you asked a police officer to define community policing, they, some police officers would be like, I don't, I don't do community policing. I go out there and I do my job. Like, I don't know if you, do you see that difference? I see it a little bit differently than you. I think I, I do see that. I think that, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think the idea that we all go in there is like, Hey, we need to be more active in the community is already prevalent. And then especially the new guys, I think it was a change or was a shift when we were going through everything. It was a shift, but now I think it's expected like, Hey, you're going to go out. Like you're going to, we need to like, we talk about like, um, you know, being community liaisons, you know, the idea of like going out there and just explain the community why we're doing things. I think people understand that role yeah. um, better now. And the whole like, Hey, what, what just happened? Why are we, why are we here? What's going on? Why is that guy getting arrested? And more explaining it. Cause I think I'm not, at least for me, I've seen it's such a big difference now. Like when I explain things to people like, Hey, what just happened over there? Did you guys, did you guys just shoot someone? I'm like, no, this guy just, you know, he fought with us. He's getting arrested yeah. for this or that, the other. And, um, but he's fine. He's, he'll be fine. And explain what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh. And they just, they just kind of like go away. It's like, yeah. it's not a big deal. Yeah. They understand what's going on in the community. And they go. So I see that from my perspective sure. as a supervisor. Um, do officers go out there and say like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm a community engagement officer. They might not think they are. Yeah. But I think that they treat, I see my officers treating everyone with no, respect. Right, and, and, so, yeah. so I think that's like maybe the definition of it is different. But I could see like on this 30,000 foot level, Chiefs being like, yeah, we have, we, we'll do everything we can for the community. Like anything we can, if you ask for it, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then officers go, well, yeah, but we have, you know, 25 calls holding and right. we have this and that and the other. We can't spend our day watching your driveway. We have to, <laughs> we have other things to do, yeah. you know, and yeah. there's one guy in a certain area. You yeah. Know? And I think, I think the better way to look at that is that um, we have police officers today who are not doing it right, but the majority of them are doing it right. And when I hear a chief speak or a sheriff speak, they often talk about the entire organization. And that's what I mean in the difference is the chief will say the entire organization is doing this in regards to community policing. And when I talk about the police officer who says, I don't do community policing, community with that, I'm not talking about most of us. I'm talking about that one officer that's still kind of resistant. Yeah. The one that if I say, hey, um, you know, I, the agency that I was with, you, you have a community liaison officer now, right? Hey, I need you to be the community liaison officer. And 
go answer a couple questions of the public on the, you know, around the yellow police tape or around the incident. And they go, oh, nah, right, no way. Well, that's the job that we need to do. That's the job we need to focus on right. doing. And so there's a different there's a difference and a disparity in that. When I tell the community, hey, we assign community liaison officers on every single critical incident, right? And that's what I do as a chief. And then I go down and I'm a supervisor of cops. I know for a fact I'm not assigning a community liaison officer on every critical incident. As a matter of fact, sometimes I'm making the community liaison officer the scribe who's at the command post, and I'm making them both. Well, how are they writing stuff down and over there answering questions of the community? So there is a little yeah, bit of a dis- right. There is a little bit of a disparity in that, and we could possibly do it a little bit better. And so that's where I think that that next level policing, which is relationship based policing and building those long standing relationships, is very very helpful. But you're right. I think I would fully agree that the agency that we worked for is um, an agency that where the majority of the people get it now. Um, but now it's about taking it to that next level. Yeah. Right? That, that's that, and that's my commitment on trying to bring it to the next level because I think that we understand how we can do it. But I don't know if we get in our car every day. And there's a number of reasons aside from community policing. But I don't know if we get in our car every day and we challenge ourselves. How can I do? How can I do my job better today? Right. Yeah, and, and I hear that. I hear that. And when I'm in that question, necessarily how we do it better, but like you're just trying to survive the day. A lot right. of guys right now. That, that's that's what I'm saying. Survive a, the day. Yeah. yeah. There's so a I, there's a wellness component yeah, right, right now that is skewed. There's a yeah. lot of a lot of trauma. Right. If if I don't get out of the car, I don't get fired. And not that they not that they're not going to get out of the car, but that's a concept right now. That if I asked a, a room full of people, hey, do you believe in this concept? I don't. If I don't get out of the car, I don't get fired. They'd say, yeah, I'm like, I get it. And that's that's hard, but. Again, it's about wellness both internally and externally. And if we're not well inside of our agency, which in the agency that I that I came from, there's a number of police officers that are uh, undergoing some serious trauma right now based off of internal affairs investigations or letting some of the external components that we have no control over control police officers. And, you know, so there's a lot of that going on. And then you get out there and why would you want a community police when these circumstances are going on? So that kind of right. circle of... Um, issues kind of comes into play. You know, I always talk about the whole, like I, I brought this, I, I talk about this on another episode, I'm sure, but like the idea of like the whole shit rolls downhill thing. Like we treat, and it's, especially internally, we treat each other uh, in a negative way. You know, as a supervisor, you might treat your guy, like if you yell at your team mm-hmm. for something yeah. and then they go out and they yell at, you know, yell at the, uh, you know, neighbor community or whatever, right? So, but the idea of you treat them with respect, even if you're giving them discipline, but you yeah. treat them with respect, like, hey, look, this is why it happened. Explain the why. Um, this is how we do it better, retrain, and they're going to be like, they'll understand where you're coming from and be able to go out there. And so when someone does something that they don't agree with on the street and they have to take enforcement action or whatever's going on, they can still treat them with respect yeah. while going through all the actions yeah, they have yeah. to we, go through. Yeah, and we call that modeling, right? So you're modeling behavior that you want them to, to, to utilize on the street, right? I don't want to raise my voice with you, and I definitely don't want you to raise the voice, your voice on the street unless you absolutely have to. Right. right? There are going to be times where you have to Well, yeah, we're not talking about officer safety stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. of normal conversations. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, and that, 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 that's such a big deal. And I think that when it comes to systemic change, I think that the training of – police supervisors in the beginning at the sergeant and lieutenant level, I think that has to, I think that has to be changed. You think about that two week training course that you go to as a police supervisor and you come out and you're like, um, okay. Right. I remember watching it's, Moneyball. Yeah. Right. So you, what do I remember <laughs> from my two week training? Well, I, I watched the hunt for red October, right? Like <laughs> that was right. So you sit there and go, ah, I don't know about all that. There's a lot of good aspects, but it no, just, hasn't, some good, yeah, yeah but it just hasn't been revamped and yeah. it need, I think it needs to be revamped a little bit so that it can help, to um, allow supervisors to be not just leaders, but also supervisors. There's a difference there. Right. So, um, so then the transition out of policing, mm-hmm. 
So going, what was your deciding factor? What made you decide, okay, you know what? It's been, it's, it's enough time and I'm kind of going on to a new aspect of my life. Yeah, there was, there was a number of different factors. I was working in law enforcement, supervising a group of police officers. But if I needed to go and put on a presentation or speak somewhere in the state or possibly in the country, I would have to take that day off of work. If I take that day off of work, then I abandon the team that I have committed to supporting as their direct supervisor. So what do I do? How do I get all those days off of work? Well, I work overtime in some other unit, whether it be working for the trains or wherever it might be, to get 10 hours. And I take that 10 hours and I bank it and I get 15 hours off. So I don't make the money. I just have extra time to get off. So I was doing that and it was becoming a cycle where I was taking you know all of this overtime to not get paid on it, to then be able to take the day off. But when I take the day off, it's not with my family. It's to go and teach. Well, when do you see your family? So now the work days are like 60, 70 hours a week, which I'm not going to discount any cops. There's plenty of cops that do that straight in police work. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not for some people. It's just not for me. I, I, I was, it was too much work for me to find a, a family work balance, a work-life balance. And I wasn't getting that balance that I felt I needed. Because I wasn't getting that balance I felt I needed, it became an issue. Like it became something that was, um, I was struggling on all of those different ends. And then on top of that, I wanted to get my education rolling and I wanted to finish my master's and start my doctorate program. So how can I do all of that and manage time? Well, right. I couldn't really figure that out. So I had made some plans on thinking maybe I was going to leave. And then um, companies like Post and Lexapol um, reached out to me and they were like, hey, you know, we have the, some opportunities for you to help out in a bunch of different roles um, with our with the organization. So Lexapol said, hey, you know, we can get you to do this training and we can have you help out with this policy and you can speak with these groups and you can help these companies. And so I was like, wow, this sounds like a really good deal. And you can make your own schedule. We can kind of work this around. You can tell us when you're available. And I said, wow, that sounds that sounds like a great opportunity. So a lot of that um, was my main driving force, right? And then, to be honest, I think that I can speak for some officers in the in the um, departments that I've trained and the department I used to work for in saying that right now morale is so low that if they could find a different thing to do and a different job that they would consider doing it. And that's another set of factors, and that's horrible, but my, I was feeling the negativity from the agency and it wasn't the agency. It was, you know, maybe an immediate supervisor here or maybe a subordinate here or whatever it is. I was feeling some negativity and that negativity, um, was starting to take a toll on me. And like I said, I try not to let people, you know, uh, upset me and the haters upset me. I try and separate myself. And so I thought, you know, if I could separate myself and still impact the eight, still impact the agency, um, more on a global level, then I want to be able to do that. And now when I, you know, speaking on that national sales call with Lexapol, I just was able to speak to almost 200 people that are responsible for the policy, wellness, and training of 200,000 police officers across this entire country. So my, my reach um, widened. And so that was, those were the factors as to why I left. Did any of that feeling, uh, like the negativity feeling near the end and like the whole like not work-life balance that bring you back at all to those feelings you were having in like 2010 when you were not having a work-life balance? Any yeah. That, it, any, it, did it relate at all or no? Is no, it, just, it's, it's, it's a, it was it was different because in 2010 I was overcoming 
a lot of the negativity that I had engaged in purposefully as a police officer just a few years prior, but I've separated my life from that. So it didn't, it, the feelings weren't the same, but the feelings of being overwhelmed, like the anxiety, like literally sitting there feeling paralyzed because you have so many things you have to do, like that anxiety attack. I've never been diagnosed with anxiety, but I'm pretty sure I have anxiety. Um, that was like, man, this is crazy, you know, and it makes it made me start thinking like, I mean, they're going to have to change my ways or start taking medication. And I was, like, that's really like kind of where I was at. And not only that, but I have two young children like Jameson and Ashton. They're, they're looking up to me and they want me around. And I had a few moments towards the last few months of my career where I had, before I had made the decision um, where my kids looked at me and they said, you know, you're, you're never here, daddy. And that crushed me. Like my kids look at me and say that I'm not there and I missed a game or I, I'm not there to support them. You know, they, they, they would tell me things like, I, I love mommy a lot more than you. And it's like, you know, I, that's nuts. Yeah. So I was like, nah, this, this can't keep on going the way it's going, at least for me. But everybody's what's right for one person is not right for another person. And I know that the value that a, that a police officer working a patrol shift in a city that value that police officer has is um, I'm going to say that it's unnoticed by almost every entity within a community. There is so much value in the American police officer. And so I don't want to, th- I don't want anybody to think that that is not a valuable job because it is such a valuable job. They are a hero to somebody every single day. And when I did my little sign off on the radio, that's what I told people is you're a hero to somebody every day. Um, but what I didn't say is that a lot of the times they're not going to tell you. A lot of times they're not gonna they're not gonna expose themselves to you and not be vulnerable. But the best way to get vulnerability in law enforcement is to be vulnerable yourself. And I think that you've probably discussed this too. But when you can look at somebody and say, "Hey, um, you know, I care about you," or you know, what you just said, I didn't really appreciate that, then they start to say, "Oh, okay. Well, I can tell you about me." And then the relationship builds right. even stronger. But we don't we don't we're not really trained on that too much. I don't think. Well, I don't think, I think that we're told not to be vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's instilled in you, like you're talking in the academy, like, hey, you need to be hardened, like hardened to people yelling at you, because that's where you see people yelling mm-hmm. in the academy, hardened to whatever situation you see, emotion, emo, you lose emotion when you go to, go to a call, when you see a dead child, or you see some heinous act happen, and you have to just handle the incident, and then that takes a toll on your personal life, and things you're going to take into it, so then the vulnerability goes away because you don't want to show vulnerability because that shows people think that shows weakness. Yeah. And my argument is that I think that if you're vulnerable, it actually shows strength because you can still do a great job and be a hard worker and handle what you ever handle, but be vulnerable and say like, Hey, you know what? That was hard. Yeah. That was hard to deal with or see or go through or whatever. And it's okay. It's it's okay that it's hard. It's okay that if you're having a hard time, we can talk about it. Yeah. I think that, I think that when we sit there and we think about that, when you can express your emotion to people and obviously not like completely break down, you got to stay, you have to have some command presence and be a leader and those kinds of things. But I think that leadership comes in you being vulnerable in the last few, the last few uh, months of my supervision life, I could tell you that there was probably one or two times where I was sitting at the front podium and I would tear up about talking about something. And I, I know that's not normal for a sergeant to to tear up in the front of the group, but I would have guys come up to me afterwards and say, Sarge, you okay? And I'd be like, yeah. And they, they'd say, hey, uh, literally, they'd be like, 
it's kind of cool that you show your emotion. Like, I just want to, I want you to know it's, it, it's okay. Like it's okay to, to not do that. And these are officers that are like looking up to me and I'm like, oh, right. like I'm feeling weird, but that's the same way I would be at home. Right. Like I, I'll, I'll go home and, and if I have to cry, I'll, I'll cry. Like if, if it's something that has, has impacted me emotionally, I'll just, I'll just have a good cry or I'll, my eyes will tear up or whatever. It's just like when you're at work, it's like, you can't do that no matter what. And it, and you can't be a robot 10 hours a day. And uh, yeah. So that's where I think in the academy, I think a small shift could be made. I, I'd like to see an academy where there were stress days and non-stress days. So like on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, here's, here it comes. But on Tuesday and Thursday, let's act like we're going to act in the police world, which is not being screamed at. People don't just scream at us every single moment in the police world. Like That's kind of fictitious. Most people listen to us. Most people do what we say. And then there's a few moments where we have to be able to take over and take command presence and do those things. And uh, um, I think that would that would really help out a little bit, uh, or a lot. I think it would really help out if uh, if we had that kind of concept. Interesting. I, um, I'm curious of, uh, for you, What? how do they designate you the... Would we say it's the national subject matter expert on community policing? <laughs> yeah. How did you get that designation? I know the why you stop me obviously got you there, but yeah. like, what is what makes you that? Yeah. So when we think about it, my interactions with police officers and community members have been very unique, and they have happened a lot more frequently than than the normal person. So an expert is deemed as somebody that knows more than the average person on something. When it comes to community policing. Community policing is the idea that there are systems and a, there's a, there is a systemic approach that we can take to building trust in our community by involving the community. Um, Sir Robert Peel has nine Peelian principles, and pr- principle number seven says the police are the community and the community are the police. It's important for us to know, <clears throat> know and have an understanding of how that operates. Police officers, when they show up, they're dealing with somebody who makes the rules, that individual is part of a community, and so that individual is actually a rule maker. But when the police officer shows up, the community member that they come in contact with has entrusted that police officer to take the rules and enforce them as they exist today. When we look at that idea, the police officer then has the power in that situation. If the police officer were to violate the rules, that community member would be able to report that police officer and ultimately, in this system, have that police officer removed from being a protector right, or retrained or whatever that is. Community policing takes that one step further. And community policing allows a police officer to understand how thankful that they should be and how much of an honor it should be to be a protector. Stay whole during that time, whether it's internally or externally, and understand that there are four legs to a table that stabilize police-community relations. And those four legs are an understanding of voice, neutrality, trust, and respect. When we have those four and we understand how those four operate <clears throat> together and not independently, but together... They hold that table of stability and trust, which is really the table of community policing, because community policing is building systems that build trust and allow us to function together. So with my understanding of interacting with communities of color, different different communities across the, the state of California, and my understanding of law enforcement systems, not only across the state, but across the entire country, it's allowed me to, to have an expertise as to what works and what doesn't work. So when we think about different ideas, um, the term stop resisting is trained in police academies. Well, <clears throat> I've done research with thousands of individuals, and I've talked about what stop resisting means. And on on the basis of, of, of this understanding, for the most part, they will say in the community, that means that I know a police officer is about to beat up a person of color. Well, that's not what stop resisting means. But it's what stop resisting means to that person. Well, that's a disconnect. 
through that training, I've realized that stop resisting is not an alpha word. It's not a word that's understood by everybody. It's a word that's understood with training. So stop resisting is a word that you learn in the academy. You learn that word in the academy, and then you think it's a legal word, and you think you're doing it because the community wants to hear it. But the truth is the community doesn't want to hear stop resisting. They want to hear the the vulnerable police officer as a vulnerable leader. Hey, stop kicking. Stop punching. This is scary. This is, this is a dangerous situation. Those are the words they really want to hear. They don't want to hear stop resisting because stop resisting, they now connect with years of issues back to Rodney King, the 1965 Watts riots, and all, all these other ideas where stop resisting has just meant I'm going to beat up a person. And, and for the majority of these contacts, it's going to be a person of color. And, and that I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. So those are all different instances. But community policing and becoming an expert in community policing is understanding what communication and trust building systems we can utilize that are the best. Because there's a bunch of different ways in law enforcement. There's a bad way to do it. There's a good way to do it. There's a great way to do it. There's your way, whoever you are as the officer, there's your way. And then there's the best way. And in my world, community policing and relationship-based policing challenges police officers to bring their way and the best way together. It's just like the idea of bringing policy and practice together. The closer practices to policy, the better a police officer does, right. right? And so that's what community policing means to me. And because I have that expertise um, in doing, you know, talking like in podcasts like this, right, and understanding how to articulate myself and articulate an idea so that people understand it, that's why Lexapaw has seen value in me and helping out with this on, a, on the national scale, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It's a very good definition. Okay. I, I could repeat it exactly how you said it. <laughs> 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 we just got a train, training class. For yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was good. Yeah, how'd you like my class? It was good. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that's, no, that, no. that's real. It's real it uh, informative for good. everybody. Yeah, good is good. No, it was. Uh, it's interesting because you talk about some of the stories you've told today. Like I've heard them through your training class. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get, you know, you talk about your vulnerability um, and what you've learned, and the fact that you talked about like the idea of being a hypocrite. Like there's certain things that you have gone through that you've changed and seen that that's a change that you had to make. And now you are imparting that wisdom or expertise or whatever on somebody else on, this is what I had to go through to figure out who, what's right. I mean, it would be a lot better to go through your career and not have to do that. Right. Not work in the gray area, not work into this, in this ability to like treat people natively and to really understand that. And uh, the biggest takeaway I think from your class was two things. A, the fact that, I mean, it's something that we all should know anyway, but the idea of like treating everybody, everybody with respect and everybody's deemed to be treated with respect no matter what walk of life they are in, yeah. whether they're the police officer, the cat, the chief of police, or the civilian person we're dealing with in the street. And then the second one was like, I, I like the the way that you treat people is the way that they want to be treated, yeah. not the way that you want to be treated because we've all come from a different you know background mm-hmm. and we all perceive things differently. Like that kid that you stop perceiving something the way they stopped them or you stopped them. Mm-hmm. So I really, I think that's, it's valuable. I think it would, like I said, I think that you, like you talked about the idea that you have to kind of branch out to, you're now able to reach um, worldwide or a nationwide audience and the, the audience that you're trying to reach in the community that you're working with might be um, not see you the way that you want to be seen mm-hmm. because they have this idea of who you are. Yeah. Um, but breaking that, I think, is really difficult, and especially for that like that community. It's going to be difficult for them to see Jason Lehman differently, um, and hopefully you'll go on to you know, do great things with the community policing. Um, besides Alexa Pole and how, where Why'd You Stop Me is at right now, what is your next 
do you have a certain goal you're trying to reach with it? Is there something that you're looking forward to? No, I mean, I, oh, there's so many things I'm looking forward to. Like life is for me, life is just beginning, right? So I'm I left the law. I left law enforcement nine years before <clears throat> what's technically retirement age, and so I have a doctorate that I'm going to achieve. I want to achieve my doctorate. Um, before the age of 45. So I, you're never going to be able to call me Dr. Lehman, but somebody that might not know me might call me Dr. Lehman. But uh, so I'll have that. That'll be a, a great accomplishment for me. Um, and, you know, it, it comes with being able to be more well-respected by people right off the bat, right? That's that's what part of what rank is, is an officer sees a sergeant from another agency and says, what's up, Sarge? Like, don't know anything about the person, but has that uh, that rank. Um, but that, that will help me to make an even broader approach to things. I want people to be able to open up the book, right? Like, so I'll read the book by Dr. Lehman, but I'm not going to read the book by Jason Lehman, right? That's kind of my thinking on things when it comes to personally. Now, when it comes to the community, I would love to be able to impact community members and police officers in a different way, right? I would love to have us see a little bit more harmony. Now, I have some utopian ideas that probably will never come true, but fighting to improve trust and um, improve legitimacy, both for police legitimacy and community legitimacy, um, and seeing those two come together would be a great opportunity for me and a great, uh, just a, just a, a, a great future goal. Um, how that, what that looks like right now, I'm in the process of shaping that because I've had six weeks kind of in this new role, and so there's a lot to it. It's it's there's just so much going on, and so I'm in the process of really building it. I had a meeting today with the director of policy sales for Lexapol, and during our conversation we talked through a bunch of different ideas on what could be done um, when it comes to building out these policies for law enforcement. Because if you have to go through three or four databases to find a policy and you can't even search by the name of the policy, which is what you probably go through is what I had to go through when you're looking up policy in your agency, that that's not, to me, that doesn't make any sense, right? Or it makes little sense. So how can we make that better? We can make it better by building systems around that. And policy is a, is a direct correlation to a measurement of accountability. And that measurement of accountability is a direct relation to the measurement of morale. Accountability breeds morale. And morale is a, measure, is a direct measurement of wellness. And so my, I'm so happy to be a part of a policy organization that deals with wellness and training and grants and a whole bunch of other things that all come back to officer wellness because of that idea. An officer who's well understands morale because they've understood accountability because they can look up a policy and understand it and they've trained on the policy. And that's really what's going on right now in our systems and law enforcement is I think I'm going to get in trouble. Well, how can you know you're not going to get in trouble if you can embrace policy and policy is interpreted in a neutral way, right? And policies, policies interpreted um, similarly across the board. And sometimes that seems like it's not happening uh, with certain agencies. If, I don't know if you'd agree about agree yeah, with that. Yeah, makes but, sense. Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a long. It, it makes sense about the policy, the way that we interpret it, and how it could be formed in a way that we all understand, in a way that we can enforce it, but mm-hmm. also like follow it. Yep. You know, it's not it's not an issue. Where it's no issues, no questions. Yeah, and, and the policy the policy that we operate under and and the agency that we're that we're from, it's not the end of the world. It's just there, there's a way to do it better, right? We talk about the best way and the, and then your way. And so your way and the best way might be a little bit of a little bit distance, right? And practice and policy might be a little bit distanced, right? And so it takes a cultural change for a supervisor to start really enforcing certain practices, right? right? Like we're not writing people up for not wearing their seatbelts in law enforcement, right? 
well, people should wear their seatbelts. Well, if people start getting written up for wearing their seatbelts, then that accountability measure changes. And then it, it, it sucks for a few weeks for the people that are getting written up. But over time, people say, that's a rule. Like, that's a set hard rule. Once we start creating those and developing those boundaries, we operate so much easier because we know where the walls are. If we don't know where the walls are, then somebody gets into a pursuit and loses their gets kicked off of their detail or completely loses the position that they were in when they didn't really realize that that was even a policy violation. Right. right. So it kind of goes back to when you need to know those rules by your parents when you're a kid. That's right. Those rules. That's right. Um, we could talk for hours and unfortunately I have to go pick oh, up my it's kids. it's going a long time. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you being on. So real quick, just where can we find, so you want to put where we can find yeah, you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the best way to, to find and communicate with me is through social media. So it's at Jason Lehman 64 is my social media where I live somewhat halfway of a person of a public life. Um, and that's J A S O N L E H M A N six, four. Um, and that'll keep you laughing. There's a lot of fun stuff with me and my family and work. Uh, and that's on Instagram and Facebook and then team wisdom. So it's the word team and then W Y S M, which sounds like wisdom, but it stands for why'd you stop me? So team W-I-S-M. And then uh, the website is wisdom.org, W-I-S-M.org. And uh, people can send me a direct message or they can email me at jason.leman at wisdom.org. And I'll tell you, for your listeners, we will go anywhere, anytime for any anything that we possibly can do. If we have the opening and there's a, a tiny bit of funding to be able to pay for a flight and maybe some per diem, um, we will make this happen. We want to get to everybody in this country the best way we can. And we may not be able to service everyone, but there's there's a community out there that needs a little bit of help. And I've realized that not every single person has a skill set to be able to do this. So we want to be able to help develop police agencies and the officers in those agencies, but also help develop communities and help with community greatness. Um, because I think that if we get 2% better every day, that we all succeed and the community becomes stronger. When the community becomes stronger, police agencies become stronger and community members become stronger. And then we reduce the amount of fear we reduce the amount of fear, we reduce the amount of violence, and when we reduce the amount of violence, we meet our mission, which is to reduce the acts of violence between police and the public. So thanks for listening to my last spiel. I appreciate it. I've said it once or twice. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think I think greatness needs to be sold, and I think that that's all good. of us should go out there and mentor somebody and uh, and sell greatness to them because that, that's what happened to me. I had mentors that sold me greatness, and now I'm, now I'm really on a path, I think, to continue to excel and make that happen. So I that's appreciate good, you and all of your listeners for all this time. It's really long now that I look down at that recording board, but uh, we'll see how it all works out. Yeah. Maybe we won't even put this on. <laughs> no, we won't. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you coming in. And you can find me uh, on Instagram at AP underscore or Sturgeon or at Let's Grab a Cup. And uh, if you want to be a guest or you want to um, shoot me an email, comments, concerns, it's uh, sturgeonwellness at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast at letsgrabacup.com or at sturgeonwellness.com. And uh, we'll throw this outro music on and uh, call it a day. Thanks for listening if you're still here.